If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 4. I'm not a minister. I'm a professor of history at Boise State. And so I'll tell you that Colossians is a one of Paul's short letters to a church in Colossae. It's 100 miles east of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. It was a small house church, probably met in the house of a man named Philemon, who also gets a letter from Paul, written about 60 AD, 30 years after the ascension of Christ. And Paul is in prison. He is in Rome as he writes this letter. And the verses that we're looking at this morning are some of the concluding thoughts he has for this house church. He says in verse 2, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Many of us are familiar with the American actor Elijah Wood. He played Frodo Baggins in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He was also in a movie last year, actually, called Grand Piano. I don't know if you saw that one. It got uh, 77% on Rotten Tomatoes uh, by the critics. And it's the premise is there's this incredible musician, Tom Salznick. And uh, he's such a great musician that they say that there's been nobody like him in a generation. But he's got a problem. He has stage fright. And so he is doing a concert. He's a pianist, and in the middle he freezes, and it's a great scandal. And for five years he becomes a recluse and finally overcomes his stage fright, and the world is going to hear him for the first time in five years in Chicago. The concert hall is packed, and he gets up, and he begins playing. And as he turns the page, there's a note on the sheet that somebody has written in red, and it says, play one wrong note and you die. And there's actually a laser dot on his chest. There's somebody that has a gun, a rifle, and if he plays one wrong note, he is going to die. It's a, it's a thriller, it's a drama. Fear of one mistake of one wrong word, of one wrong comment, ruining everything. I don't know if you've ever been in an interview and you've said something and it's like, I should not have said that. Happened to me. It was at another university. I said, big enchilada. I should not have said that (laughs) at our research one institution. But I think of that with regard to what St. Paul says here. It's kind of strange what he says in verse 4 where he says, pray that I may proclaim it, the gospel, clearly. It seems that Paul is afraid that when he gets up to talk, he's going to, he's a wrong note. He's going to say the wrong word and ruin everything and everything becomes murky and unclear. If you don't understand the pressures of what it is to to be a minister, you should 
be up here every Sunday and be aware that you're trying to make what you're saying extremely clear and afraid of making one mistake. Any follower of Jesus has at some point, if not every day, the fear of not presenting the gospel clearly to those who we love. We seek to always be prepared to give the hope that is within us, why we've invested our lives in Jesus Christ, why we're resting our eternity on him, which leads to a question. What is one of the greatest misconceptions in the United States today about the Christian message? Why isn't it as clear as it should be? What's not being said clearly in America today? I believe that the greatest misunderstanding about Christianity in the United States in 2015 is actually what it means to believe. What it means to believe in Jesus Christ. What is the nature of faith? If you look over at Hebrews chapter 11, uh, Brad read that earlier. Uh, In verse 3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Verse 3, by faith we understand. That can be rephrased, by faith we think. By faith we reason. The popular concept today is that Christians actually would rather not think. They don't want questions to be asked of them. They want to just rest on tradition. Whatever my parents told me, whatever the Bible says, whatever I learned in Sunday school. A writer in Washington Post recently said, Christians are poor, uneducated, and easily led. But the Bible teaches that not only is faith compatible with thinking, we're not going to stop there, faith requires, it consists of thinking. Tim Keller in Redeemer, New York, you cannot be a Christian without using your mind to its uttermost. This past Tuesday, if you watch or if you get on internet, uh, I have CNN on internet, and the top story on Tuesday in CNN online was millennials leaving the church in droves. And it said that more than one-third, 35% of millennials, high school, um, college, and post-college millennials, now no longer say that they are affiliated with any faith at all. That's up 10 points from just seven years ago. And many of us who work with college students and millennials contend that they're leaving the church not because they're thinking, but it's just the opposite, because they've stopped thinking. Norman Cousins, a famous 20th century writer and a professor at UCLA talking about college kids and millennials say this, our age is not the age of the meditative person. Rather, it is the sprinting, shoving age with new daily anecdotes that spring into being and add us from store counters. I mean, just think of apps for crying out loud and the new apps that come out every week. The CNN article ended with a provocative quote from a Duke professor who says this, if it is the case that millennials are leaving the church because they are bored, 
then deep intellectual engagement promises the church some hope. The hope is deep intellectual engagement. What he's saying is that thinking leads to faith. The Bible tells us that before we can come to God, we must believe that he exists. We must have faith. And you can't do that without thinking. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Let's say that you really want a 1967 Mustang, a Ford Mustang. And you've been looking for many years for a 1967 Ford Mustang and you find out online, I don't know, autotrader.com or whatever, that somebody has a 19, the exact car that you are looking for, everything to the T. And before you give them $30,000, you you're going to go want to look at this Ford, right? And so the guy says, okay, you can come look at the Ford. I live at 652 North Walnut, in Springfield, Mississippi. Come on over and look at the, the Ford. Now, what would you do? You would figure out, is there such a place as 652 North Walnut, Springfield, Mississippi? Because I know there's a Springfield, Missouri, and I know there's a Springfield, Illinois, and a Springfield, Massachusetts. I don't know if there's a Springfield, Mississippi. So I'm going to research. I'm going to look at maps. I'm going to find out where that place is. And before coming to God, you must believe that he exists. I have many students over the years come to me and they're in deep crisis and they say, Dr. Woods, I'm ready. I'm ready for Jesus. I'm ready to hand my life over to God. I thought he was the answer. I thought she was the answer. I thought this was, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in despair. And more and more, I'm starting to ask the question, well, do, do you know that God is true? Do, do you know very much about the historical Jesus? And the answer oftentimes coming back is, well, that doesn't matter too much. It's true for me. It doesn't have to be true for everyone, but it's true for me. What's going to happen to that person when it stops being true for them? Chicago does not exist because it is true for you. It's there whether you think it's there or not. And we begin by knowing that God is there. One of the most misunderstood phrases that Paul wrote was, we walk by faith, not by sight. As if there's a division between faith and reason. Paul isn't saying we walk by faith, not by reason. True faith is actually based on reason. While sight often leads to irrationality. Several months ago, I went to the dentist. I had a tooth problem. And the dentist worked on it and said, it's beyond my pay grade. I'm going to have to send you to get a root canal, an endologist. So I have to go there. I'm in the chair for two and a half hours. And she says, I'm sorry, Dr. Woods. This tooth is not going to be saved. I'm going to have to send you to a surgeon and they're going to have to take it out because it's abscessed. It's, it's, it, it's a mess. So I go to the surgeon and 
the surgeon says, yep, this has got to come out. Now, don't worry. I do this all day long, every day. I've done it for 30 years. No problem at all. I could do it blindfolded. I tell him, don't do it blindfolded. (laughs) So you come back next Tuesday, and we'll do the surgery. Well, I'm a cynic. I was born a cynic. That's one of the reasons I'm a historian, I'm a cynic. <laughs> and so I said, well, wait a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do research on this doctor. I'm going to see what people say about him. And then I'm going to do research on this surgery. They say they've got to put me to sleep. I've got to make sure that everything's okay. I've, you know, overkill. I'm, I, and I'm extremely comfortable next Tuesday walking in. And I get into the office and they put me in the chair but then the doctor walks in and he's wearing a white gown <laughs> and there's a mask around his nose and they're starting to put things uh, on my body and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, why did I decide to do this? <laughs> and then there's pliers. Now, I'm sure there's another for them, but there's these <laughs> things that are there and I'm getting nervous and nervous and what should I be saying at that point? I should be saying, Think. Think of all the research you've done in the last week about this. I thought everything's going to be okay. All the testimonies say that it's all it's going to be okay. Don't worry that he's wearing a mask. Don't worry that you're starting to get nervous and your hands are wet. Think about what you know. You go to the doctor and he looks at your heart and he says, You gotta stop eating chocolate Hagen Dazs ice cream. <laughs> Let me tell you, I just looked at your heart and you've got to stop eating that pint a day of chocolate hog and Donna's ice cream. Well, I get home and I'm feeling great and there's the chocolate hog and Donna's ice cream. Things that are true do not always feel true. And how is faith strengthened? How is your faith strengthened? Hey, just believe. Oh God, give me more faith. We need to look at how Jesus talked to people about how to increase their faith. He didn't look at people and say, hey, you guys, just just believe. I know you've had a rough week and I know you're you're, you're worried. Just believe. No, he said, listen, consider the lilies. Look at the lilies. Look how beautiful they are. I want to tell you that Solomon in all of his splendor wasn't robed like one of these flowers. Consider. David, Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars, when I stop and when I think. At one point, I think it's in the chapter 12 of John, Jesus says, I, I know it's hard for you to believe that a carpenter's son created all this. I know it's hard for you to believe in me, but he says, at least believe in the miracles that I'm doing. At least think. When was the last time you saw somebody open the eyes of a blind person? Think. I don't know what kind of week you've had, but whatever week you've had, the answer isn't, oh, I just got to believe more. The answer is think. How does thinking lead to faith? Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the universe was made by God. We study. We think 
of biology and chemistry and music and math and we come to one or two conclusions either there's a creator or there's not everything is random chance now I am not a Christian I told you I'm a cynic I am not a Christian because this is the best option that that doesn't do it for me but if you're not a Christian this morning how's that other thing going for you How's that thought that there is no meaning to life? How's that working for you? How's that working for you in your, in your relationships? I'm not a Christian because I believe or because I know everything about God or Jesus. I am a believer because God has revealed himself and he's told us to consider. Because I know that a world without God, if you're a thinker, A world without God means that when you tell somebody I love you, all you're saying is that there's these chemicals in my body that are going round and round. I I, I can't explain it, and, and that's why I love you. But lest I come across as somebody who says, oh, you've got to take Christianity in a laboratory and you put it with Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and, and, and you make that decision. It's the power of God that opens our hearts to the truth. If it was just a matter of being smart, who, who do you think would be in this room? 1 Corinthians 1, think of who you were. Not many of you were wise by the standards of this world. God chooses the weak things. I love the story of Dr. Francis Collins, one of the greatest scientists of our age. He was the director of the Genome Project. He was the one that broke and understood the human genomic code. He won the U.S. Presidential Medal of Honor, Ph.D. from Yale in physical chemistry in 1974. He earned a medical degree from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He was raised not by Christian parents, not really believing in God. And at 26 years old, he's doing a rotation with patients who are dying, people who have terminal illness. He's not a believer. He writes, one afternoon, a wonderful elderly woman who was my patient who had very advanced heart disease that we had run out of options for, and she knew her life was coming to a close, told me in a very simple, sincere way about her faith and how that gave her courage and hope and peace about what was coming. And as she finished the description, she looked at me sort of quizzically, as I sat there silently feeling a little embarrassed and she said, Doctor, I've told you about my faith and we've talked about my family and I thought maybe you might say something. And then she asked me the most simple question, Doctor, what do you believe? Nobody had ever asked me that question before. Not like that. Not in such a simple, sincere way. And I realized I didn't know the answer. Everything was all of a sudden in a muddle by this simple question. Doctor, what do you believe? So that troubled me and I thought about it a little bit and realized what the problem was. I was a scientist, or at least I thought I was, and scientists are supposed to make decisions after they look at the data, after they look at the evidence. I had made a decision that there was no God and I had never really thought about looking at the evidence. That didn't seem like a good thing. It was the decision that I wanted the answer to be, 
but I had to admit that I didn't really know whether I had chosen the answer on the basis of reason or whether it was a convenient form of perhaps willful blindness to the evidence. I wasn't sure there was any evidence, but I figured I'd better go find out because I don't want to be in that spot again. So I read up on the world religions and ended up getting more confused and frustrated. And then a book was given to me. And in the first two or three pages, I realized that my arguments against faith, Christianity, were really those of a schoolboy. They had no real substance. And the thoughtful reflection of this Oxford scholar, whose name, of course, is C.S. Lewis, made me realize there was a great depth of thinking and reason that could be applied to the question of God. And that was a surprise. I'd imagined faith and reason were at opposite poles. And there was this deep intellectual who was convincing me quickly, page by page, that actually reason and faith go hand in hand. Though faith has the added component of evidence and revelation. Just a simple old woman asking this 26-year-old brilliant scientist, what do you believe and why do you believe it? It's hard to get a 26-year-old, it's hard to get a 16-year-old to think about death. Reminds me of a story of a student comes to my office and spiritual issues come up and they say, well, Dr. Woods, this is the kind of student I am. I'm a, I, I cram at the end of the semester. I don't really read very much during the semester and sometimes I come to class, but at the end, I knock it out of the park. I cram the night before the exam. And that's kind of how I'm living my life. I'm just doing my thing and at the end of my life, when it comes near the end, then I'll really get serious about God. I said, I hope God doesn't give any pop quizzes. <laughs> we don't know how long we're here for. As a historian, I love to read the beginning and end of people's lives. And if you want a little bit of evidence of what it's like for those in Christ and those who are not in Christ, you ought to just read the stories of people who die in Christ and those who die outside of Christ. I'm not saying that proves anything. There's, there's a lot of evidence there. Voltaire, the father of the Enlightenment, who said, 100 years after I die, there won't be any Christianity left, died screaming, I am abandoned by God and I'm abandoned by man. Just about a decade later, Well, I should say this about Voltaire. His nurse who, who cared for him said this, for all the wealth of Europe, I would never again see another atheist die. <laughs> Just about a decade later, John Wesley, we sang his brother's song. That was the first song that we sang this morning. So beautifully played by our musicians. He was dying and there were those around his bed. You know what his last sentence was? His last sentence was, best of all Christ is with us just a few years later John Newton that slave trader that rotten man who God saved this, this was his last sentence I am a great sinner and Christ 
is a great savior. But as I close, I wonder if you could return to the text with me and look at what Paul says in verse 3. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. You know, just believing in God isn't enough. If you're just a theist here today or agnostic, and you, that leads to despair. What kind of God is it? Does it a God who plays with me like I'm a marble? Does he care for me? The mystery of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and in many various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son who is the exact representation of his being. The mystery of Christ is that God sent his son so that we could have this intimate relationship so that when I study biology and I study chemistry and I study music and I study history, it all makes sense. So Paul, how are you going to make this mystery any clearer? How about this? For me to live as Christ. For me to live is Christ. That's it. He gives meaning to all of my life. This man, God, who gives us forgiveness, who takes us out of darkness and puts us into light. When I'm a slave to sin, makes me free. When I'm thirsty, and I can never quench my thirst. He gives me water, so I'm never thirsty again. For those of us who have spent our entire lives looking for that thing, that person, that experience to fulfill us, the mystery of Christ is that he comes. He says, I want to be your brother your savior, your king, and your restless soul will find rest in me. Let's pray. Father, many of us are still searching for that experience, that person, that thing. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come even this day. We would know that anybody who comes to you must know, must weigh the evidence, must know that you exist and you reward all those who diligently seek you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for this Ascension Sunday that he sat down because his work was finished and accomplished. And he now tells us to cast all our cares on him because he cares for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.